This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. There's somewhat of an irony to aging. Nobody likes being old, yet we all hope to get there someday. The effects of aging in individuals are really difficult to describe, yet we're pretty much able to recognize aging when we see it. Aging affects essentially all of our organs. The muscles, we see a reduction in strength and stamina. In the brain, a decrease in cognitive function and the ability to learn new information. Aging causes a reduction in our hepatic metabolism of drugs and our kidneys' ability to eliminate various waste products. And so far, the only way to avoid the effects of aging is an alternative that really nobody wants. So today our guest is Dr. Nathan Labrasser, senior author of a study which was published in the journal Aging Cell. The authors described significant benefits from exercise on a cellular level, which corresponded to an improvement in physical changes related to aging. This gives us hope that all age-related changes may not be totally inevitable. So let's find out more about this topic. Nathan, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Great to be here, Daryl, and that was a fantastic introduction. Well, you know, I was looking at your bio before we started, and it describes you as an aging researcher. So given the nature of your work, you may want to have that reworded at some point. But uh, <laughs> as a clinician, and actually as a geriatrician, we recognize aging in our patients clinically, but what's happening at a cellular level to see what's really going on in aging? Daryl, your introduction was fantastic in the sense that we've all recognized and appreciated the impact of aging on a number of different health conditions and health outcomes, whether it be Alzheimer's disease, which we all fear and are very familiar with, whether it be the loss of our mobility with advancing age consequent to the reduction in muscle mass and strength, whether it be impairments in lung function or cardiovascular function or kidney function. In the last few decades, however, we've posed a different question of what is aging? What is this biological process that poses such risk for the overwhelming majority of chronic diseases that we all deal with as clinicians and as we all fear as patients and loved ones. And we are now at a point where we appreciate that aging is really a reflection of the accumulation of damage to our cells and molecules. And we now have the ability to identify those different forms of damage, whether it be something like damage to our DNA, compromised function of our mitochondria, the powerhouses within our cells, the impaired ability to turn over and get rid of old and damaged proteins. So this is a process called proteostasis or proteotoxic stress. It's almost like the garbage disposals within our cells stop working as well. Oxidative stress. We have a laundry list of conditions or, or forms of molecular and cellular damage that we now refer to as hallmarks or pillars of aging. And the big question is really, can we do something about that? And as you hinted, aging is not rigid. It's very plastic and malleable. And we're starting to understand what types of things influence that process. Mm -hmm. Again, as clinicians, we recognize that patients may be the same age, but they can look much, much different physiologically. So I have to assume that not all individuals age at the same rate. Is that correct? That's completely true. And I, I love the clinician saying of once you've met one 70-year-old, you've met one 70-year-old, right? right? That there's incredible difference. And this is probably one of the most important distinctions that we need to make on the clinical side. And we can get more into this about clinical decision-making 
but chronological age and biological age are two very different things. And we've been working hard on trying to understand how to best capture this other component of biological age. I can ask you your birth date and we're, we're all set on the chronological age side, but yeah. engaging your biological age is a very different question. How about given one individual, do all of our organs age at the same rate? Yeah, that's a great question. Clearly they don't, because if we, if we really believe in this concept that aging is actually driving the deterioration dysfunction of different cells and, and molecules and ultimately leading to a disease process, some of us will suffer from Alzheimer's disease. Others will suffer from cardiovascular disease. We all appreciate as clinicians this concept of multimorbidity, which is a very um, fascinating outcome, but it's usually collections of diseases and conditions as we get older. And really that emphasizes the fact that our organs probably age at different rates. We're not at the point yet where we understand why that's the case. If we experience the same environmental stressors, if we have the same genetics throughout our, our system, is it epigenetic alterations at a, at a cellular level that dictate what ages faster or not? We're, we're still in the early stages of that. All right. Let's get at some of the work that you did that was published. I found that fascinating stuff as, as a geriatrician and also now at the age where maybe this may benefit me personally. You talk about senescent cells, also called zombie cells. It sounds rather ominous. Uh, describe that. So cellular senescence is a, is a cell fate. So we think of cells within our organs of undergoing damage throughout the life course. And, and there's really a few different options and how a cell can respond to that damage. One is if the damage is not so severe, it can find mechanisms to repair that damage. And unfortunately, as we get older, it appears that both the aggregation or the accumulation of, of that damage increases and our ability to repair that damage decreases. So once we reach a certain point of no longer being able to repair that damage, there are kind of really two options. One is a cell can commit suicide, and that's a process called apoptosis, or a cell can enter this state of what's referred to as senescence. And traditionally, it was defined as a, a state of growth arrest where cells stop dividing to prevent malignant transformation. So it's a fundamental defense against cancer. Those cells that have a degree of damage will say, hey, look, I shouldn't replicate. I shouldn't copy my DNA. I shouldn't proliferate. So I'm going to go into the state of growth arrest called senescence. In our youth, that happens all the time, right? Because we may have damage to DNA or a mutation in DNA that says, I'm a damaged cell. The immune system will come and clear that cell out of the, of, out of the organ and, and we're all fine and good. But what we've noticed through really a decade of work, really pioneered, much of it pioneered at Mayo Clinic, is that these old and damaged cells start to accumulate throughout our organs as we get older. And these cells in and of themselves are damaged, but it's a bit of a, to use a Minnesota analogy, maybe the seed in the soil. Where not only is that cell or that seed damaged, but it's highly, highly secretory and it spits out toxic cytokines and chemokines, matrix remodeling proteins and growth factors that paradoxically can actually promote the growth and spread of malignant cells. In addition to that, we think that it's the primary cause of inflammation and deterioration within multiple organs and tissues. As a scientific community, we've done a lot of work to really understand how senescent cells contribute to a number of different disease processes. And most of that work has been done in preclinical models, mainly mice, where we can remodel diseases like Alzheimer's disease, like osteoarthritis, like osteoporosis, sarcopenia, kidney disease, and lung disease, and show how these damaged cells mechanistically contribute to the disease process. And then more excitingly, if we get rid of those damaged cells, how they can improve parameters of health and function. In your article, you describe using biomarkers to identify these senescent cells. Can you explain that a little bit more? So biomarkers is really a term that refers to biological indicators. And 
When we talk about trying to understand someone's biological age, the question is, what can we measure? And most humans are happy to give a sample of adipose tissue or perhaps skin, maybe less so muscle. But once we start talking about the age of different organs, such as the heart or the liver or the kidney, how do we assess the age of those organs? So we've been very interested in, in developing biological indicators, if you will, of someone's senescent cell burden in their body. And to do this, we first started with a cell-based approach where we looked at what are senescent cells spitting out. So if we look at fat cells that are senescent, if we look at skin cells that are senescent, if we look at kidney cells or muscle cells that become senescent, really in a cell-based system, what are they spitting out? And in 2020, we published a study in JCI Insight that described really some of the secretory factors that can be measured in the human circulation that may be reflective of systemic senescent cell burden. And we showed how those factors increase with chronological age in humans. And importantly, we showed how individuals of different biological age, if we define that by disease burden or a concept called the frailty index, how those factors were higher in individuals with advanced biological age relative to age-matched peers. In addition to that, we showed that those biomarkers or those proteins that we could measure in the circulation were predictive of adverse health outcomes. So if you're undergoing surgery for aortic stenosis, we could predict rehospitalization or surgical complications by measuring these circulating factors and estimating your biological age. Or if you had ovarian cancer and were undergoing surgery, we could predict ICU admissions. So we think these circulating factors are predictive of perhaps systemic senescent cell burden. And are these senescent cells basically found throughout our body, basically in all organs? To the extent that we know so far, yes. So we know that senescent cells are common, if you will, or accumulate in really all organs associated with most of the major chronic diseases that we think of as clinicians. Is it thought that basically all the effects of aging could be explained by these senescent cells? Or do you think there's more to it? Yeah, there's certainly more to it. It's interesting, right? When we think about different drivers of aging itself or the mechanisms of aging, if you will, we think about DNA damage, we think about proteotoxic stress, we think about mitochondrial dysfunction, epigenetic changes. These all sound very distinct, and I think to some extent they are, but they're certainly very overlapping where many of those could result in the same outcome, which could be senescent cells. So senescence could be somewhat of a common outcome of many forms of uh, age-related damage, but there are certainly, it's a multifaceted process, so it, it doesn't explain everything. Well, why don't you describe your research now and find how you found that you can impact these senescent cells with exercise. That's just fascinating stuff. Yeah, thank you. So we've been very interested in ways to modify senescent cell burden. And we've done a number of studies in, in, in animals where we can use uh, genetic tricks and different pharmacological agents to manipulate senescent cell abundance. And ultimately, we're quite keen-eyed on identifying pharmacological agents that can be used to reduce senescent cell burden in humans and ultimately either prevent, delay, or reverse the impact of aging on the onset of chronological diseases. But beyond drugs, we're also incredibly aware of the powerful effects of lifestyle factors on healthy aging. And at the top of my list is, is exercise. On the top of others' lists are dietary modifications, sleep habits. There's a number of things that can clearly influence our aging. And to make a clear point in humans, we did a very simple practical study where we partnered with the Dan Abraham Healthing Living Center at Mayo Clinic and asked if we could partner with them and study participants in their active older adults exercise program. 
These are individuals over the age of 60. The only inclusion criteria is that they have to be able to get up off the floor. So there are different stages of health of those individuals. And they participate in a, a beautifully structured program, but not overwhelming. They're not participating in seven days a week of highly intense exercise that would intimidate most of us. But it was two days a week of progressive endurance training and strength training, some flexibility and balance training, supervised by exercise professionals at the facility. And we simply looked at um, parameters of health and function prior to the exercise intervention. And we also looked at our markers of senescent cell burden and blood samples from these individuals prior to the exercise intervention. And we followed those individuals for 12 weeks. They took part in exercise. And at the end of the study, we measured those same outcomes. And what was really quite impressive to us was in addition to improving measures of strength and physical function, we saw pretty dramatic reductions in markers of senescence that we measure in the blood. And I'll tell you that we often talk about exercise and how much is enough. And I, I think this was a beautiful example of how even moderate levels of physical activity in these individuals profoundly affected this biomarker of aging in their blood samples. So do you recall how much exercise, how many minutes of exercise, and was it a combination of both aerobic conditioning as well as resistance training? That's a great question. So the total volume of exercise, so when we talk about exercise prescription, it's typically frequency, intensity, and duration, right? And so this was two days a week for about an hour each time. So roughly 120 minutes a week of structured physical activity and exercise. That consisted of a mix of strength training, a lot of that being more functional movements, body weight resistance, not necessarily big plates and dumbbells, and then endurance training of kind of working at a higher percentage of kind of maximal heart rate for, for a period of time just to challenge the cardiovascular system. Importantly, this was not a reflection of changes in overall physical activity in these individuals. So we actually used accelerometers at baseline in the end of study and we didn't see that this intervention dramatically changed overall physical activity levels, which is important because it shows that really the intervention itself was what drove the changes in these biomarkers of aging. So this isn't an excessive amount of activity. This is something that we could translate into a reasonable amount of recommendations of exercise for our patients. For sure. And I think it's um, very doable. I think it's a another level of evidence that exercise really has a powerful influence on health outcomes. We think about what's the first line of defense for everything from Alzheimer's disease, to diabetes, to cancer, to bone health, the loss of muscle. And our, our knee-jerk reaction is exercise. Um, mm -hmm. There's a bit of a balance of, of how do we promote adoption and compliance with better understanding the mechanisms to really provide an educational platform to, to, to promote those activities. So you described the effects in a cellular level of these senescent cells. What was the effect clinically on these patients, these subjects rather? How did they yeah. change, you know, in terms of their, uh, their health? So when we design studies, I shouldn't give away our secret sauce, but we kind of think of three buckets of data. One is we think of the biological impact of the intervention, whether it's a drug or whether it's exercise or a dietary manipulation. And that's what we measure in tissues and in the blood samples. We use all the tools and technologies available to us today as scientists. The second bucket is more performance-based outcomes. So what can you do? And what we witnessed in these individuals with just two days a week of, of exercise training, so we saw significant improvements of measures of strength, measures of physical function. So a common tool that we use in geriatrics is the timed up and go test. So that's how quickly an individual can get up out of a chair, walk a certain distance, turn around, which is a bit of a balance challenge, and then get back to the chair and sit down. That improved significantly uh, in response to the exercise. 
And then the third bucket that we often look at are patient reported outcomes. How are you doing? How do you think your health is? And I think this is incredibly important and something that we often overlook in clinical research studies. And here we saw that measures of self-reported well-being and physical health and well-being, mental health and well-being, social health and well-being improved significantly in response to this intervention. And, and those changes corresponded very nicely to the measures of biological age that we had on the patient samples. Well, you found significant improvements just on two days of exercise. And I know I've got patients, if they, once they hear this information, they're compulsive enough, they're going to exercise seven days a week. Is there any evidence that more is better? I think that's a really good question. It's a bit unfortunate not to change the question, but most people that hear this and really grab onto it are those that are already kind of Mm -hmm. participating in a relatively healthy lifestyle. You know, we have a number of challenges, not just COVID, but we have an obesity epidemic colliding with population aging and, and really accelerating the onset of a host of age-related conditions and diseases. I think it's a very fair question of how much is enough, right? That's slightly different. And then is more even better. And we're not quite there yet. I don't have a great answer for you. There's plenty of evidence that lifelong physical activity, people that participate in endurance exercise or resistance exercise for many years have extension of what we refer to as health span the period of life free of disease and disability relative to sedentary peers, right? And that would suggest some dose relationship, um, but we just don't have the fine criteria for that yet. Right. You've described some impressive information here that we can take, and maybe I can ask you to summarize the effects of exercise on aging and whether you think this has a potential to slow aging stop aging, reverse aging? And then finally, what are the implications for us as clinicians? What should we be telling our patients at this point? Number one, aging is modifiable. And I would also emphasize what's often overlooked is that aging doesn't start when we're 65 or 70 or 75 or whatever the number is that we want to place on. I'm an older adult now. It's a life course um, event that even though we don't see the manifestations of aging, such as Alzheimer's disease or cancer or cardiovascular disease until we're in our 60s or our 70s, I can promise you the biology for those conditions is hard at work, probably at the time of conception, if not before. And that sounds a little tongue in cheek, like I'm joking, but it's critically important to think about their trajectories of aging. This is a life course phenomenon. And some people call it development. Some people call it other things, but for us, we call it aging. Intervening early is always better. And that to me is really delaying the effects of aging. Aging is a bit like gravity where we can't prevent gravity or stop gravity, but we can learn how to better cope with it. And as we think about ways to modulate the effects of aging, again, whether it be DNA damage or damage to our mitochondria or accumulation of these old and damaged proteins, exercise is clearly a mechanism that can promote the repair of those different biological processes and stave off the impact of those processes, which manifest as first a loss of resilience, and then perhaps a loss of organ health and function, and then the onset of disease or multiple diseases later in life. So really aging is malleable, earlier is better. And and having said that, I'll talk out of the other side of my mouth, which is it's never too late to start, that we know that even in late life, there's been beautiful studies in, in individuals in their 80s that show that exercise interventions can have profound effect on health function and independence. Well, this is just fascinating stuff, and uh, it only raises more questions of uh, things that we yet don't know about uh, aging, but it certainly gives us a start to give us hope that uh, aging in terms of deterioration is not inevitable, 
and we can delay and improve and have a more, a better quality of life as we get older. So Nathan, thank you so much for joining with us. We've been discussing the effects of exercise on the biomarkers and senescent cells associated with aging with Dr. Nathan Labrasser, senior author of an article which appeared in the journal Aging Cell in June of 2021. Nathan, thank you again for joining us uh, to, for this uh, fascinating discussion. My pleasure, Dale. Thanks so much. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.